they're recognizing the importance of including you know, a wide range of income, um, a wide demographic balance of folks in the downtown and making that an essential part of the core of downtown. Welcome to Dirt NC, where we talk all about the places and spaces of North Carolina and the people who make them awesome. I am your host, Jed Byrne. Throughout my career in engineering, construction, finance, and development, I've covered just about all sides of the land use ecosystem. This show creates an opportunity for me to share what I've learned with you as well as introduce you to some of my friends, both new and old, who are doing transformative work. With each episode of Dirt NC, my goal is to make sure you walk away learning something new about land use. I promise to keep it simple and straight to the point. If you ever have any questions for me, please reach out on Twitter at OakCityCRE. Now let's jump in. Today, I'm interviewing Michael Rogers, a project manager with DHIC Incorporated, an affordable housing developer based in Raleigh. We talk all about a pretty amazing project that he has been working on, the Willard Street Apartments. Not only are the Willard Street Apartments affordable, they are a part of a mixed-use development that is also located in the downtown Durham core next to multiple forms of transit. Michael Rogers joined DHIC's real estate development team in September 2016. Michael directs rental housing development from the initial concept stage through project feasibility, design, financing, construction, and stabilization. He also works on the financial structuring and underwriting of the development pipeline. Prior to joining DHIC, Michael was an acquisition manager at a nonprofit tax credit syndicator where he was responsible for originating, underwriting, and closing tax credit developments across North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and Georgia. He also worked as a legislative assistant in the legislative offices of the Virginia General Assembly. Michael is a graduate of the College of William and Mary and has a Master's of City and Regional Planning from UNC Chapel Hill. He previously served on the Town of Carborough Planning Commission. He is also a member of Leadership Triangle Class of 2019 and is Vice President of the Board of Directors of the Durham Co-op Market. Michael Rogers on the real estate development team at DHIC Incorporated, located in downtown Raleigh, um, affordable housing developer, started in 1974. We develop affordable housing throughout Triangle in North Carolina. Awesome. Now, today we're here to specifically talk about the Willard Street's apartment. Can you tell me a little bit more about the the Willard Street apartment complex and uh, where it is, uh, the size, and um, just some of the more interesting details about the project? Sure, yeah. Uh, Willard Street Apartments is located in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Uh, it is located on what was a city-owned piece of land, leftover land from when the downtown Durham station was built back in 2007, 2008. Uh, it was really important to folks in the city, uh, advocates in the community, city council members and the mayor, that mixed use and affordable housing be built on that site and integrated into the downtown. Uh, so in 2016, the city released a request for qualifications and DHIC partnered with Self Help, who's a Durham-based uh, business, CDFI, downtown developer, a number of different things that they do. And we responded to the city's RFQ and put in our, our request to be considered for the project. We were selected and then we moved forward with development plans over the course of about a year uh, to develop what became a mixed-use and affordable housing building on about an acre and a quarter uh, immediately next to the downtown transportation center. Awesome. And so um, the project is just now wrapping up, is that correct? Construction? 
We got our conditional CO on March 25th after starting construction in July of 2019. So we had about 75 days of slowdown due to COVID, but everything kept rolling as best we could. And we are already about two thirds occupied and they are working on tenant upfit on the commercial space as we speak. Awesome. So the, the timing was, I guess, about five years, six years. Is that right? Yeah, if you think about it from kind of when we got in with the RFQ to where we sealed the building and started leasing up, yeah, it was a four and a half, five years or so. Is that typical timing? No. <laughs> um, I, these projects can take any length of time. Um, so that, that actually is typical for some of the more complex projects that we might do. But we also you know, do a fair few uh, simpler kind of slab on grade standard construction stuff that happens to wrap up much, much more quickly. So this was on the lengthier end of that kind of project delivery schedule, if you will. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the, uh, the insight there. Can you tell me a bit uh, more? You mentioned that your location is right next to transportation. Can you talk to me a bit more about how this, this site is unique and this project is unique as far as DHIC is concerned and kind of what those interactions and, and benefits of that site produce? Yeah, I think that hits on really one of the key unique elements of this project. You know, North North Carolina has you know a very a few tax credit deals that are probably located within you know a reasonable distance of transit, but this is one of the um, most transit oriented, if not the most transit oriented development that was a uh, tax credit deal, nine percent tax credit deal in North Carolina. So, I mean, the important thing here is that we, we were able to go back and work within the confines of North Carolina's tax credit standards to put this deal immediately next to the Durham Transportation Center, which has regional bus transit, local bus transit, has Greyhound, it has Megabus, and it's immediately next to uh, the Amtrak station as well. So you have multimodal transportation connected throughout the city and the region. And that really isn't seen hardly anywhere else in the state. And, and it doesn't really work within kind of the confines of what our typical affordable housing deal might look like. Uh, you know, if you're looking at Willard Street Apartments is 82 units, our standard pro probably site size for something like 82 units would be more like three to four acres. And we're sitting on an acre and a quarter of immediate infill right in the heart of downtown Durham. So that's, right, so that, that's that a, was one of the things I was going to ask too, is, is walking. I mean, so you're, you're adjacent to transit, but also to walk to the very center of downtown would take about how long do you think? Five minutes. Yeah. Maybe less. Uh, it's, it's right there. Uh, you have access to you know, retail, um, healthcare facilities, there's little urban markets, um, a number of job opportunities. And then if you look forward, the university's Ford site was purchased by Capital Broadcasting and is kind of in the development planning stage. So that's going to be a major downtown node for years to come. And so mm -hmm. this is going to put affordable housing on the ground right next to all of those opportunities and employment hubs there. How, how likely, um, and we'll circle back to, to a comment you made offline about parking, but how likely would this project be if it wasn't for city ownership? 
mean, with a, with a location like this, do you think affordable housing would have been in the cards without the involvement of the city of Durham? No, I, I mean, I, I think that's an impossibility, especially given the nature of our real estate market right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were to look at an appraisal for that land, I've, it, these days, that acre and a quarter would probably be $3 million. Yeah. Um, and we got it as essentially donated by the city. You know, on top of that, the city put in uh, some, some of their money from some of their affordable housing funds that they did as a contingent loan. Uh, which was a huge subsidy to help the project. And going back to the parking piece, that really hits at one of the real barriers to doing deals like this on an affordable basis. Because if you're doing downtown infill, to truly do downtown infill in the right way, we're building structured parking. 99% of the affordable deals out there are going to be surface parked because it's obviously far, far more affordable to build surface parking. We don't have the ability to do that on this site and to do that in a downtown infill setting. And so we had to build structured parking. Now, North Carolina Housing Finance Agency administers the tax credit program. The typical tax credit deal for a family or unage restricted product requires 1.75 parking spaces per dwelling unit. So if we have 82 units, you know, you're talking about a, a pretty substantial number of, of structured parking spaces. We went back to North Carolina Housing Finance and made the case that we are immediately downtown, immediately next to a major transportation center and got approval to go back and do a basically 80% or 85% parking ratio. So there, it's a, a less than one-to-one parking ratio when you consider that you know precast parking can cost some sometimes upwards of thirty thousand dollars per space, you're talking about a, a material cost savings on the project. Right. So that's you if you saved eighty spaces, you're looking at I mean roughly two and a quarter, two and a half million dollars of savings. And and the the driver for the structured parking is that. Um, is is that a design element or is that simply a physical constraint of the site is i mean it's mostly a physical constraint of the site um you know there's there's a design element to that as well because the downtown uh udo the the design ordinance there requires that mixed use in that corridor mm-hmm. to to do that we would not have been able to do the wood framed construction behind that if we were doing ground level retail so okay. doing the structured parking allowed us to do that and have concrete and steel in that retail space and then start the wood frame construction above that. You know, at the, at the same time, we have applied for in May of 2021, a second phase of the Willard Street project called Ashton Place, which is affordable housing for 51 seniors. And uh, that project would use the parking located on the lowest level of the Willard Street apartments. And so designing it the way we did with that structured parking is allowing us to do a, a multi-phase project as efficiently as, uh, as possible across that site. And, and with the, I mean, drastic reduction in parking, right? So you went from 1.75 parks per thousand in a typical project, which on this size would be roughly 140 
right down to point you said it was point seven five I think it was about 0.85 or okay, so. Okay, 0.85. So, yeah. so you 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 are drastically reducing your parking. You have mm -hmm. you have less than half of what you would typically have. How has how has that played out? Um, is is the parking a, an issue now that the the project's coming online and people are occupying the units? You know, we we are not fully occupied, so I can't speak to that 100%, but we haven't really heard any issues with that thus far and everybody that's we're, we have a waiting list built way out beyond what the, you know, a bit availability that we actually have. And everybody in that application process has been made aware of what mm -hmm. the parking availability is. And that has, that has not posed any problem uh, to what our, you know, lease up might look like. So we've had, we're two thirds full. Nobody's really had any, any issue with it yet. Um, and we expect that that's going to continue to be the case. You know, we also have, there's a fair amount of, of street parking available mm -hmm. around there um, as well as other parking decks that are probably underutilized. So I think if that demand ever presented itself and became problematic, there's, there are probably resources available to solve that with, mm -hmm. you know, commercial decks that aren't being used at night, that sort of thing. But thus far we've, you know, been really pleased to see that our kind of assumptions are, are being tested out and, and proving to be pretty accurate so far. That's awesome. Can you can you tell me a bit more about the the retail component of your project? Um, I think you mentioned before that this is not, you know, mixed use and retail is not something that you do or that you see really being done in many affordable communities. Can you talk a bit more about how um, you structured that deal financially and, and some of the challenges maybe that, that are posed by having mixed use when it comes to funding of affordable uh, apartments. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, I think that's one of the real challenges in the affordable space in North Carolina. And, and I think something that we're working hard to address, um, you know, when we go to do an affordable project, we're you know, years out in front looking at how this is going to work. We put together all of our applications for funding and financing and tax credits, send those back to the state, and we have to be able to prove everything out. We have to have our, you know, rental revenues and operating expenses, everything measuring out with the, both the tax credits, the subordinate debt, and then the first mortgage that we've got on these projects. There, there's a real cost to building that retail space, but unlike the flexibility that you might have with private equity on the market rate side, we don't have the ability to basically spec build commercial or retail space. We have to have a way to pay for that. Um, and if you've got in this project, we have 5,000 square feet of retail space and, that, and then the parking uh, that is attached to that all of, all of that measures out to a real material cost that without a source, we were unable to show that as working. So what we came up with here uh, to make that work is that we're partnering with self-help uh, who's done quite a bit of this in downtowns in Durham and, and across the state and self-help and DHIC work together to come up condominium structure that essentially condoed out the lower level of parking and the retail space, figured out what kind of a pro rata square footage of that was, and then applied that ratio to the kind of applicable costs in the development cost model 
and came up with a purchase price for that condo space that self-help was able to take their equity, their own private equity and debt, combine it with two and a half million from Duke University and the AJ Fletcher Foundation and essentially purchase that condo up front or put a substantial down payment on that that became the source for the cost of actually building it. So they took essentially the speculative risk because then they had to turn around and find the tenant. That's now also a huge success story because they were able to find a tenant um, called Local Start Dental affiliated with the UNC School of Dentistry who's gonna take all 5,000 square feet of that retail space and provide services, I think on a sliding scale to people all across the spectrum, um, dental services to people who otherwise may not have access to those dental services. And oh, by the way, it's right next to the transit station if those same folks don't have the ability to get there by their own car. Right. So it's, it's a, a massive success in that sense because we've done the retail space, we've now got the tenant we found a creative way to finance it and we kept those costs and that kind of residential condo separate from the commercial condo, which works for the tax credit affordable housing side much better as well. Right. So, so that, that transit oriented development TOD piece kind of comes back full circle with your commercial piece as well, because not only do the residents get benefit from the commercial being located on site, but because of the location within the transit network, Anybody that that network touches, and including folks downtown that can walk to the project, um, can capture some of that benefit as well. And, and if I'm understanding you correctly on the financing piece, basically in, in a market rate or, or private sector development, the developer can forecast you know, to their lenders and to their partners and say, hey, we're going to build 5,000 square feet, and we think we're going to get a dental clinic. And we think they're going to pay this much in rent. And so you can kind of bring back that value and get financing based on that pro forma or future looking value. But for the affordable structure, you would basically either not be able to do it or you, you would get no credit for that potential future value unless you had a, a lease in hand. Is that correct? That, that's exactly right, Jed. Um, and, so, so when we put together that kind of cash flow model, when we submit for tax credits, Mm -hmm. The only way that we can get that revenue from a com commercial component is with like a pre-leasing agreement. But if you think about the time lead on these, you know, we're applying in January for, of 2018 for Willard Street. We would have to be building in a pre-leased retail space in January of 2018 for a retail space that is really not going to be finished until like September of 2021. And I, I don't think there are that many tenants out there that are going to be signing pre-leasing agreements that early and taking on that degree of risk. And, and that, that is one of the biggest challenges of building mixed use when you're doing affordable housing in the way it's, it's administered. And, and not only is there multiple years between when you would have to sign a lease and when you would deliver the space, but you're signing the lease when you're applying for funding, right? It may which not ever is, get is not guaranteed. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're applying in you know in the January application round. We're starting to apply starting those applications. You know, any number of things could derail the project. You know, you may not get financing. There may be 
some other risk that comes up, you may not get tax credits. I mean, that's a 9%, that's a 9% tax credit award. In North Carolina, maybe 25 to 35% hmm. of, of tax credit awards, 9% tax credit applications actually get funded. So it's, it's a huge question. We're fortunate enough to get funded with Willard Street on the first try. You know, it's, it's not out of the question to try two or three times yeah. on a deal. And if you're sitting there as the real estate or as the retail, potential retail tenant, and you're going back in and you're going back in, it, it becomes a you know, risky and, and probably unsavory uh, investment on your side to be making. Right. Because in all that time, you could have picked a different location and gone ahead and signed a lease and moved in guaranteed and, and know the space is there. Absolutely. So that, that's definitely an interesting challenge. On the design side, taking a step back, tell me a little bit about how how Willard Street, and I don't know if this is tied directly to the location or kind of the zoning, but how did the Willard Street apartment project differ from a typical affordable housing project that you guys might work on as far as kind of the design and, and how it interacts with the surrounding neighborhood? Yeah, I'll, I'll start by saying that the way North Carolina Housing Finance manages their qualified allocation plan, the QAP, um, that we apply under, they manage the design um, guidelines and requirements pretty strictly. And, and it's great because the result of it is when you drive around North Carolina and you see tax credit communities, you don't know that that's affordable housing. It, it fits in perfectly and it matches the style that it's going into. You know, the same is true with Willard Street, but here, instead of the North Carolina tax credit guidelines being the ones dictating our style, it's the fact that it's downtown infill in the commercial core district of mm -hmm. the UDO. And that puts some real pressure on the design of the project to go above and beyond Kind of what our typical would be. So if you think of, you know, a typical family project for DHIC would be a slab on grade, three-story garden style apartment, you know, with breezeways walking up to the units. Here we're talking about two stories of structured parking with four stories of stick frame on top of it, interior corridors, uh, trash chutes, elevated plazas, things like that. Um, and then you're talking about this, the actual design and skin of the building and, and the site amenities and everything else that's required in the UDO. And there are a few things that are just way outside what we would normally do. You know, just a few examples, all flat roofs with TPO, which that's, that's pretty atypical. We're usually doing pitched roofs. Right. Um, a big part of the UDO, in addition to that mixed use retail component, is that they have these urban forecourts. So the units that are on the lowest level okay. have kind of like stairs up to almost like little urban stoops. That's something we would, we would never normally do. And you're talking about the masonry and detail that goes into that. That adds an enormous amount of cost to it. Uh, we've got, you know, we're in the downtown. So there's a lot of sidewalk, a lot of street furnishings, some really uh, kind of premium light fixtures, things like that all add very real cost to the project 
that might otherwise you know, not be included in one of our typical projects. So you're really ramping up the total development cost of the project just based on where it is. And, and how does the funding dynamic respond to those increased costs? Costs. Well, it's, I mean, we got to have a, a way to pay for it. You know, whether we built a, a building like that on a 10 acre site in suburban Durham versus downtown, you know, the rents are going to be essentially the same. Mm. And so that's where money from subordinate loans, like what the city of Durham put in, they put in, in addition to the land, there's $3.6 million of city funding and, and the city of Durham through I mean, this was not one of the bond projects, but did pass the $95 million affordable housing bond mm-hmm. has shown that there's a, a, a real act at the public level to see this sort of stuff happening. To, they're recognizing the importance of including you know, a wide range of income, um, a wide demographic balance of folks in the downtown and making that an essential part of the core of downtown. That's awesome. Um, can you tell me a bit more about kind of what you think or, or what you're most proud of with this project? And then in a bit, we can talk about some of the challenges. Yeah. So going back um, to kind of the question you had just asked previously, you know, we did, we didn't really, I didn't get to it too directly, but we have certain exterior amenities that we have to provide. Um, when you're doing a family project, you have to have a playground. You have to have a picnic shelter with picnic tables and a grilling station. When you're talking about an acre and a quarter next to the transit station with structured parking, where, you know, where do you put that? Mm -hmm. So our, our design includes the top level of the structured parking kind of the inside corner of the L-shaped building is an elevated plaza. So it's two stories above, above the station, overlooking the skyline of downtown. And uh, I'll put that up against any market rate elevated plaza out there. Right? It's got a, a turf lawn, um, a playground, you know, this really wild picnic shelter with picnic tables made by a local company. Um, we, you know, you get up there and it's, it's an experience to sit there and, and look out over the, the Durham skyline, see cranes in the air, see everything else that's coming up. And it, it feels like a special place. Um, and knowing that we've been able to do that and include that for the residents is a really special feeling. That's awesome. What about, what about some of the challenges? What was, was either unique or, or difficult on this project that you're not used to uh, dealing with? I mean, there there are a number of things that were really tough, you know, from a a few different angles. Um, You know, one of them was timing. It's one of the silver linings of of COVID that because there was a disaster declaration, because everything was going on, Mm -hmm. there there was an extension of deadlines. Um, But 9% tax credit projects have a concrete set in stone deadline for when the building has to be placed in service. So we started the project in July of 2019. We had to uh, contractually be done where it would be a major blow to DHIC and our business with applying for future tax credits 
if we didn't finish by December 31, 2020. Mm. So before the disaster declaration, we were racing to make sure we were going to be done on time. We had kind of all kinds of plans in place of how we were going to do that. And there were costs obviously attributable to some of those things. You know, with, with the disaster declaration that kicked the deadline out and gave us an extension there. So that went away. Uh, but that was a, a real sweat for a while of how we were going to make that work. You know, from a kind of design and construction standpoint, you know, DHIC's experience has been, oh, by and large, building fairly conventional multifamily communities. Mm -hmm. you know, mixed use is not something we've done very much of. You know, we did Carlton Place, which is in downtown Raleigh, um, and actually has the DHIC Home Ownership Center in some of the retail space there. Uh, but other than that, we haven't done much of it. And so doing some of the design and construction of that was a, a learning experience yeah. because we're getting used to reading kind of the commercial and retail sets of plans, understanding what the requirements are there and adapting to that in ways that, you know, we're just not used to, but we're, you know, now we are. And I, I'd like to think that there's going to be a lot more of this. So hopefully this was, you know, a great building block to uh, building more of this stuff downtown. Yeah. That, that kind of leads into my next question is what, what advice would you give to other developers, either affordable or, or market rate who, who are interested in doing kind of an infill mixed use project? I mean, one of the biggest things that we had that was important is a really good relationship with the city. Mm -hmm. They knew how important this project was. They made it a city manager priority. And so getting through the permitting and inspection side of it happened about, geez, I, I would say way faster uh, than anything else that goes through downtown. We didn't, we didn't go to the same extent in reaching out on the back end. And I think that's the, the main advice that we learned is main keeping those chains of communication at, open as you're going through it. Mm -hmm. So that when you go to work with public works to get a water meter or anything like that, you know, when you're working in a UDO, like downtown, the downtown core district, you know, there are all sorts of things that are outside the scope of what you typically might experience in most other projects. Mm -hmm. And keeping really close communication and relationships with the folks that are administering, you know, those aspects of it is going to be huge to keeping on time, you know, keeping your construction schedule and delivery schedule where it needs to be, uh, mitigating your costs that might come up because you, you might have missed something that's different in the downtown than it might be elsewhere. That really has a, a huge material effect on the project. That's awesome. What about, what about neighborhood involvement? Again, I mean, you guys are right there in the heart of downtown, how either in the planning stages or, or during construction or, or even kind of now that you're open, how is, how is the project or DHIC interacted with the neighborhood or the neighborhood interacted with DHIC? So that goes back to, you know, I said the original transportation center was finished in like 2007, 2008, I think maybe it was, maybe it was a year or two later than that. Mm -hmm. 
but that land was sitting there and actually it was, it was the neighborhood. It was folks in the community that were the driving force behind getting this to where it ended up being as affordable housing. You know, you look at groups like uh, congregations, associations and neighborhoods, Durham can, Mm -hmm. um, or the coalition for affordable housing uh, and transit. Those, those two groups and, and other folks in the community really, really pushed hard for the inclusion of affordable housing on this site. And I don't think it would be here, but for their involvement. Mm-hmm. So having them involved early, pushing hard is, is what made this project a reality in the first place. You know, looking beyond that at the community, you know, we've obviously got the bus station as our neighbor um, the NC Mutual building had recently undergone, you know, pretty substantial actions. They've done some really amazing stuff there. Mm-hmm. Some co-working space. So there's some nice interplay there. And then you've got a bunch of market rate housing and then the capital broadcasting site that's coming down the line. So it's kind of a unique community in the sense that it's, it's not a neighborhood in the same way um, that you might think of other neighborhoods but there's a, a ton of activity in the area. When you think of you know, what that looks like and how the UDO plays into that, you know, having retail space on the ground level is something that not all of the other spaces or sites do. Mm-hmm. And so you're keeping that traffic, right? You've, you're driving traffic. There's people coming from the bus station, walking around to get to the dental office. There's people from our site coming down and leaving go into other stuff, you know, as the, as the um, university Ford site develops too, I think that's, then you've got some push and pull of people going to and from, and that that's really going to activate that whole streetscape in a way that it really hasn't been for a long time. That's awesome. That's, that's cool to hear how having kind of that advocacy, you know, third-party advocacy up front really helped kind of push the city and, and I think push probably developers to, um, come up with it with a project that that I think really fits a lot of needs and like you said is unique and and um, maybe wouldn't have gotten done otherwise so that's that's yeah. cool to hear um, we've got a few more minutes Let, let's talk a little bit about financing so so what makes a project like this unique from a financing perspective well you talk you hear a lot of the kind of layer cake analogy when you talk about especially tax credit deals Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, so if you think about what the overall financing for this looks like, you're talking about pretty substantial piece of, of the overall development cost of the project is that tax credit equity, right? So there's a million dollar annual tax credit that was syndicated out to RBC capital markets. And so that $10 million of tax credits over 10 years uh, materializes as uh, you know, close to 9.2 million for us up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's able to be used. When you pile on the 3.6 million from the city, you know you're you're a good way there. Then you add on the condo purchase agreement price, and then a about a 4.3, 4.4 million dollar loan through uh, Freddie Mac through Prudential. You know, so that's that's kind of building it out. If you if you think of the overall kind of development cost, typically on a 9% project, you could expect 
the tax credit equity to account for about 65% of the total development cost and the re and the remaining 35% would be debt <laughs> whether it's hard debt through a conventional source or some sort of subordinate financing that 35% or so is debt here uh, just because some of the cost components that we've talked about you know the total development cost is so much higher but our equity and our tax credits are, are capped so that if we're looking at probably overall, it's about a $21 million project. Uh, so we're really talking about more like not even 50% of the total project is tax credits. That makes a pretty considerable difference as opposed to what it would be in other instances. So it's the but for of the condo purchase agreement and the city financing that really made, made this possible. And that, that, equity to debt ratio of kind of two thirds equity, one third debt on these projects is, is really kind of the flip of, you know, or even more so, I mean, a, a typical market rate project may be 35% equity, 65% debt, or, or, you know, 15, 20% equity and, and, you know, 75 to 85% debt. And so again, I think that's a, a unique, challenge to a project like this that that you guys overcame which yeah. which certainly doesn't simplify the equation um, but then again you go back to to the the leasing and, and your demand side is through the roof right you've got a really? waiting list which i would be willing to bet most market rate apartment communities don't have and oh so yeah if from a risk perspective that it's also kind of flip-flopped where, where just the demand is so huge that that you're going to stay leased and and be leased as soon I, mean, I would guess as soon as you open the doors yes yeah i think that's 100 percent true you know it, the demand is hard to put it's hard to emphasize how huge it is yeah if you look across the community across durham across the triangle across north carolina the vacancy rate of affordable projects is i mean close to zero Right. We all the time are fielding calls from folks trying to get on a waiting list somewhere. And we have, you know, 45 properties across mostly the triangle, hardly, hardly a vacancy to be found. It, mm -hmm. it is, you can't build your way out of the problem. And that I think gets back to the next or one of the next problems that we're dealing with on the affordable in the affordable spectrum is that you can't build your way out of it. And the markets are so hot, the investment potential for market rate side is so hot that we're having trouble preserving the affordable housing that we already do have. Right. So the, I, I think that's a huge, that's a huge piece of it. So you're, you're losing, and again, to, to be clear, the, the demand for your projects is not, is not a good thing. All right. It, it, well, it helps reduce the risk right. or you would, you'd seek, you, you would think it would help reduce the risk to a lender to say, listen, if we can build this, you know, we, we will have no problem leasing it up because again, for this horrible condition that the demand is through the roof and we have, you know, we have no available units, you know, again, back to your point of a typical way to look at market rate development is look at the vacancy. And if you have a lot of vacancy in an area or a product, then you, you're not going to build more, but your vacancy is, is zero. I mean, you guys are hundred percent full. And so, uh, and then you bring up the whole point of, of, not only is it 
cost prohibitive to build more again because because an affordable a two by a two by four in an affordable apartment costs the same as a two by four in a market rate apartment um and so so costs are high but so is competition because you've got market rate forces you know developers that are looking for land that are looking for deals and then on top of that you've got the reverse treadmill effect of of you're losing you're losing existing affordable units because they're getting redeveloped or pricing people out, which increases the demand side for, again, a, a pool of available units that is not growing rapidly enough. So your, your demand is, is already above supply, but it's growing faster than supply, which is, um, it's a crazy thing to try to wrap your mind around. And, yeah. um, just appreciate you guys being out there, you know, on the front lines, trying to, trying to help and trying, trying to rebalance that equation. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's rewarding, but it's challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the more attention that gets paid to this at the local level, you know, be it within the community or within local governments that, you know, there are a lot of things that can be done. And I think people are starting to do it when you get, um, with the increases in density that are happening with kind of changes in, in zoning, mm-hmm. you know, when folks are going in on the market rate side, we've seen people run into problems getting community support because their stuff doesn't include affordable housing mm-hmm. because people are starting to pay attention to what this issue is. It's actually one of the ways that, you know, we're trying to make an impact now is when there are folks going in trying to do that, propose a new higher density project you know, for them on the market rate side to do that affordable themselves can sometimes upset their, you know, investment assumptions that they might be making. And so one way they might be able to look at that and make an impact is, you know, carve off a piece of a piece of the site and sell or donate that to an affordable housing developer who can do that affordable housing, take, take that piece off of the market rate side, but mm-hmm. ensure that there's affordable housing included as part of the overall development. And that way you do get kind of that diversification of, of um, and some more unique demographics within the site. Right. Which I think goes back to your earlier point about advocacy, right? Having, right. having community input and saying, listen, you know, this is a problem. This is a need. And here's partly how we can address that. Um, and again, I don't, I don't know that there's a silver bullet, but um, <laughs> no. if, if there was, you guys might already be doing it. Given what you just said about community involvement and about how this is an issue that I think is, is gaining a lot more attention, rightfully so, affordability and just kind of, of, of ways things are working and not working in our communities. Is there anything, you know, what, what if, you, if you could talk to the people listening, um, or, or who are going to read about this interview and, and give them one recommendation of something to do, something to read, um, you know, kind of what, what would be a, a charge or something you would give to the folks to do moving forward? You know, I think, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to understand the dynamics of, of what's going on. The North Carolina Housing Coalition puts out these great one-page infographics per county one for each county and they they show you know here are the number here's kind of the area median income for the county here's the range of incomes 
here's how many people are paying more than 30% of their earnings for housing and they're considered, you know, rent burdened. Mm-hmm. And here's, you know, the percentages of people in, uh, in home ownership and in, in rental units that are cost constrained and overburdened. And here are the professions that, you know, here are the, the average salaries of those professions. And it puts it in perspective because when you think about affordable housing and who's living in affordable housing, I, I think, you know, there's long been kind of a stigma to it. And when you look at the buildings and you can't see that the building is affordable housing and you realize that the people living in the affordable housing are the people that you work with in and out every day, that that goes a long way toward really just making that contact with the issue when you might not have earlier and realizing it's important to include that in our communities and, and pushing for it. So I, I think that's a, that's a pretty simple ask. Yeah, no, that- that's, that's an awesome reason. That's not something I've seen before. So I'll definitely be looking those up, sharing for, you know, Wake and Durham and Orange counties. Cause I think again, that, that visibility for, for someone who might not otherwise have that is, is pretty critical. And then one thing again, to kind of wrap, put a big bow on it. One thing you didn't talk about, but we we've, we've hinted at with costs and TOD is, you know, you talked about 30% being kind of the cutoff for being rent burdened. When you look at here's your total income, here's how much is going towards housing. Well, I think something very valid to add on top of that is your transportation costs, right? That's and so if, if, if you can live at Willard Street and you don't have to own a car or two cars and you can still get done everything you need, I mean, that's thousands of dollars a year uh, of savings that, that yeah. you don't have to, because again, if, if, if you have a more affordable home, but you have a lot of transportation costs because of the location of that home. And I, th- I think it's pretty fair to argue that that should be included in that calculation and, and would for sure add to the burden. I mean, your wallet doesn't know if you're spending a dollar on housing or a dollar on gas right. uh, or car repair. No, so that's, that's, a, that's a great point. And it does. I think it does bring it full circle pretty well. Congrats again to Michael and the DHIC team on the delivery of a fantastic project. You can find more information about all of their work, including the Willard Street Apartments, at www.dhic.org, or connect with them on social media at DHIC Inc. I've also included links to the NC Housing Coalition infographics mentioned in the episode in the show notes below. As always, I'm grateful that you have chosen to share this time with me. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions about Dirt NC or anything land use related, you can find me on Twitter at OakCityCRE. And if you want a simple and straight-to-the-point update on Raleigh Commercial Development, you can subscribe to The Top 5, my free weekly newsletter at www.oakcitycre.com. Until next time, thank you.